0: Thank you so much, Ariel and team. That is called using your gifts for the glory and honor of the Lord, isn't Amen. it? Amen. 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 Thank you guys. In uh, 2016, there was a study done by uh, the FBI, and they were looking at fatality of uh, peace officers. And uh, they found, if I remember the number correctly, surprisingly, um, there's an average of 118 law enforcement officers lose their lives each year uh, from the dangers. Plus, uh, on average, another 180 officers are uh, victims of assault on the job or are wounded or afflicted. And so they've been trying to do these studies to understand are are there factors uh, involved in, are, are there things that are happening? Um, that are leading to those fatalities? Is there a way that they can shape training, uh, ongoing training, initial training, the academy, all those kind of things to reduce fatalities, to reduce injuries, those kind of things? And one of the findings uh, was very surprising and and kind of informed them. What they expected is that a a lot of rookies, uh, the inexperienced, those were the ones that were um, statistically statistically speaking, um, at risk for fatalities. And they found that to be the opposite, was true. In fact, the average uh, peace officer that was losing his life or her life was the age of 40, and that it seemed that uh, veterans were the ones that were statistically more at danger of a fatality or, or being wounded on the job. And they're saying, how do we understand that? How do we unpack that? And one of the things that they did or they really hypothesized is is that it wasn't inexperience that was the common cause. It was actually familiarity. And that the uh, police officers, that there was a, a kind of a drift away from some of the simple precautionary procedures that they'd been trained, that they'd been practicing year in, year out. And as they grew in experience and familiarity, they hypothesized that they didn't do some of those simple precautions, those things, those rhythms, those ways, those practices that really protected them from potentially volatile and dangerous circumstances I was thinking isn't that human nature right that as we as we start something new we, we start a new job or something like that we're trying to do all the procedures all that right as we grow in familiarity we kind of pull back and we become a little bit lax and we miss that I think that's true spiritually as well I think there's a a, a dynamic that we can do some of the things when when we first come to the faith, we can learn some of those aspects, those practices that lead to a growing relationship with Christ, that lead to where we're entering into the faith and we feel good and we're living into that. And yet, as time goes on, there can be, you can call it this, this spiritual drift that happens, this, this la- we, we relax some of the disciplines and the practices that got us to this place. It's been rightly said that the Christian faith is not a sprint but a, a marathon, a- and that's true. That, that uh, much of the faith is this long walk in the same direction for and with the Lord we're going to experience ups and downs, peaks and valleys and there's going to be times that we can be in that that rhythm. You know the times I'm talking about, right? Where hopefully some of us do right that 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 our prayer life that has that vibrancy that we're we're hearing the voice of God in in the words of God as we open up Scripture we we've been worshiping we feel His presence as the, those practices are working and jiving. In fact, after last week's message, someone came up and said, "You know, uh, it feels so good. I, I feel like I'm in rhythm. I'm in the will of God today." I was like, "Awesome!" But there's also times we're not in rhythm, right? There's also times when we can't sense his presence in worship. There, there's times that, that we haven't brought our Bible down from the shelf, right? So, Or, or we did recently and had to go like, right? Because there, there's all that dust there. That, there's times when, when in, in our prayer life that... We really haven't really prayed for a really long time. Not, not just personally, not just one-on-one. We just haven't entered in there. And just as it's dangerous for peace officers to pull away from some of those practices, I think there's a danger in our spiritual lives when we drift and get away from those practices. I I, I think the danger is that our soul starts to become dry because we're we're not going to the streams of living water. We're not drinking from God's spirit on a regular basis. Our, Our souls, rather than lying down by green pastures, our souls are growing weary. Weary and tired day in and day out. And who knows when our souls are tired and weary, that's when it's the most dangerous. That's when we begin to compromise. That's when we begin to let go of some of those practices. That's when we begin to justify behaviors or thoughts or actions that we wouldn't have dreamed of in the past, and yet we're tired and we begin to justify those little, those little compromises. There's a famous passage um, that many of you will recognize from Revelation where Jesus is the ascended Lord and it gives us a picture of one of the churches in Revelation and he's knocking on the door. What's the door? It's the door of our hearts, right? He's knocking on the door. And this, this scripture in Revelation 3.20 says this, Here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Most often when I've heard that passage spoken about, it's been used as an invitation for non-believers to open the door of their hearts to invite Jesus in. And I think that's a very valid, I've used it that way. I think it's a very valid use. Jesus, how incredible is that invitation that he wants you to open the door of your heart so that he would come in and eat with you, fellowship with you, commune with you. The interesting thing about that passage is it wasn't originally written to non-believers, this invitation was to believers. Why would Jesus say to believers, sons and daughters of God who've received him already into their hearts, why would he say, I'm knocking at, at the door of your heart. If you open up, I'll, I'll come in. Why would he say that initially to, believe, to believers? The scripture tells us that. The believers had, had grown lukewarm They'd become passive in their faith. He was speaking to veterans here, not, not rookies or those on the outside. He, he was saying, listen, somewhere along the road, you put me out and you closed the door. I love you too much to leave you there. Would, would, would you open the door of your heart again and invite me back in we are on the final chapter of the book of Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 13 Um, and uh, we have come a long way through the book of Nehemiah it's personally been refreshing to me and renewing I hope that got some key leadership lessons that you will remember and um, chapter uh, chapter 11, he uh, lists, they list the new residents in Jerusalem. And then uh, they also have this celebration of the wall and the dedication of the wall. They uh, have that in chapter 12. And they've got choirs and they've got things happening. And it makes a whole lot of sense to me that Chapter 12 would be the last chapter of Nehemiah. And yet there is a final chapter of 13. And I always like to ask the Lord, why did you place this chapter, Lord, in there? What, what is the purpose and the reason for this chapter? It's not a very celebratory chapter, it's not a woohoo, we did it, yeah! In fact, it's kind of a hard chapter, right? It's a hard chapter to read. It's a hard chapter to preach. And, and I think what the Lord is doing in this final chapter is that he wants to speak to those who have wandered those of us who have kind of lost our way in the faith we we are christians we are sons and daughters of god we're believers but but there's this this spiritual drift that was happening in the people of israel god had just accomplished this incredible activity he brought so many of the exiles from around the world, back to Jerusalem. He had rebuilt the temple through Ezra. He'd rebuilt the wall and the sense of security against grand odds using Nehemiah. People had moved in. The the rituals of the faith were happening there. All of that was good. Praise God. And yet, chapter 13, there's this drift that's happened. And we see God through Nehemiah, this perhaps last leadership lesson of Nehemiah. What do you do when you're drifting? What do you do when you've wandered away? What do you do when perhaps not even aware you've ushered Jesus outside of the deepest parts of your heart and soul? And now he's knocking on the door. What do you do? Perhaps this final leadership lesson from Nehemiah is contained in chapter 13. I think it is. And I wanted us to look at some of the reasons why we drift and some of the things that we can do. To address them I think this, this chapter, even though it's with an ancient people, at ancient times, there's a, a freshness that I was st- struck with. I think we're going to see that the people drifted for three primary reasons I could identify in this text. One was moral compromise, led to another was um, simple neglect neglect of some of the things and the ways of God. And the third was simply forgetfulness, forgetting some of the lessons, the past lessons that God had taught us. And Nehemiah, in this amazing way, he addresses the people and some of these areas of drift. Look at Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4. It says this, Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Any of you remember Tobiah from the earlier chapters? He was one of the enemy, one of the instigators, one of the guys that was trying to keep them from building the wall. Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room. This was Eliashib the priest provided Tobiah enemy of the state as it were with a room in the courts of God so you've got the temple and you've got the greater courts with rooms for all the priestly activities and the rituals of the faith and one of the priests took a room and gave it to Tobiah and Tobiah moved in he's living there He's sleeping there. He's doing his stuff in a room, the courts of God. And he provided with him a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense, the temple articles, and also the ties of grain, new wine and the olive oil prescribed for the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So all this room, it was supposed to have all this stuff. And yet Tobiah... Enemy of the state is hanging in there. Now, this happened while Nehemiah had stepped away to go back to Susa, King Artaxerxes. It says, verse 6 But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem for the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and come back to Jerusalem. So when the cat's away, the mice will play. Nehemiah comes back. Look at what he does. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and I threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I get a a visual of a breakup right, with the, the guy down below. How many commercials have we seen that? And the girls throwing guitars and all his stuff out there. So Nehemiah takes all of Tobiah's stuff. He goes in the room. He says, uh-uh, what's going on? And he starts throwing Tobiah's stuff out of the room, right? I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, going to get rid of this junk in here. Not just the physical junk, all the spiritual junk and compromise that went along with this decision. And then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I'm putting in there what's supposed to be in there, what God ordained to be in that room. We lose our way sometimes through moral compromise This one priest in particular compromised while Nehemiah was away and Nehemiah came back. He must have felt like, can no one else follow God's law? And what does Nehemiah do? He cleans house, right? He goes in, he steps into the room and he says, "Uh uh-uh, what is going on? Don't you get the spiritual significance of placing into the room of God? what should not be there it invited impurity into the house of god you know i believe this was a foreshadowing of something that would happen in the new covenant times new testament in jesus time can you think of any at that time some of you know that right where where jesus walks into the house of god and he sees all the money changers and all that going And Jesus folds his hands and goes, that really shouldn't be so. Isn't that, he doesn't do that? What does he do? He forms a whip. Yes, Jesus. Jesus forms a whip. And he starts driving out all the unhealthy stuff. He sees the tables. And what does he do? The tables can I help you stack the coins because they really... No, he just, he turns over the table. Jesus is saying, I'm going Nehemiah on you. <laughs> Drive this out. I think we have the passage there. Yeah, Jesus enters the temple courts, drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables, the money changers, the benchers of the selling of the doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer but you're making it a den of robbers. He's saying that is not so. And he's not all gentle and kind in this moment. He's dealing with sin. He's dealing with impurity. He's dealing with moral compromise. And he says no. I've been reading the last several weeks with incredible sadness and dismay as somewhat of an outsider, though I think it's an incredibly poor reflection on, on the entirety of God's church. But the t- Pennsylvania grand jury report from the sixth diocese that they found over a 70-year period, 1947, all the way back then, 300 priests identified as abusers with over 1,000 victims. That's almost inconceivable to me. It also describes a systematic and detailed cover-up to protect the priests and the institution. Now, if you've been coming to SEC for any period of time, you, you know that I have a great respect for the Catholic Church. I, I really do. I, uh, of course, there's points of theology that I, I don't necessarily agree with, but I, I do believe the Catholic Church has a role to play, a vital role to play in the, the coming of the kingdom of God in this world as broken as they were. So I I don't want you to hear, yes, I am an outsider. I don't want you to hear me throwing stones, but I, I just felt like I had to address this. And I'm praying for the Catholic Church. And now I am praying that someone, whether the Pope or whoever that is, would go Nehemiah on the Catholic Church. That this is some, a, a, a system. I want to say I would be saying the same thing if I were a Catholic priest. I, I hope I would be saying the same thing. But a system that leads to that kind of abuse and misuse of power and sexuality that that leads to a culture of of, of 70 years. It doesn't just need some realignment or some additional rules. It needs reformation. It it, it needs a turning over of the tables within the system. Amen? Amen? Now, that's an outsider so let's go to an area where we're insiders. Do you know where you're an insider? So no longer do we have a big temple in Jerusalem, right? No longer are there courts of God to, for you to monitor, right? There's, there's no temple anymore. But there is a temple in the New Testament. Do you know what that is? Look at your brother and sister sitting next to you and go, you... You are the temple. You. And so what what this picture, even though it's a long time ago, we see this moral compromise happen in the temple in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament we realize we are the temple. So I think it begs the question, is there a room in your soul? Is there a place in your heart in your mind, that there is a stench of sin that's there. Maybe it's this back closet that you have done a really good job of putting that away, right? But that compromise is there. And the Lord is saying, you don't need to play. Don't play with fire. Go, Nehemiah, on that area of your room. Eradicate. That is dangerous stuff. You're inviting this creeping darkness. If you give the enemy a foothold in any area of your life, you don't go, hmm, that's probably bad. You confess, you name it, you lay it before God. You drive out whatever you need to drive out of your life. And you cleanse it. I'm so happy that we have communion this Sunday. <laughs> Let's think of the big three, sex, power, money, right? Sex, power, money. It's the big three, right? We're all susceptible. We all allow that, right? Would you think about, as you prepare your heart in communion, is there an area that the beautiful presence of Christ wants to enter in, but that door has not been open to him. And this morning, he's, won, he's knocking on that area of your life. And he wants you to clean it out. Moral compromise is one area that we can Experience this spiritual drift. There's a second area. If we keep reading, it was connected to that. You'd see, verse 10, this idea of neglect. Look at verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites, those who would, they were part of the priesthood, they would carry on the rituals of the faith in the Old Testament times had not been given to them and that all the Levites and the musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. You see, they weren't, the, the people weren't bringing in their tithes and offerings and the Levites needed those things to live and so they're like, hey, we, we want to eat. So they went back to their own fields and so the rituals of the faith were, were not being maintained. So, Nehemiah, I rebuked the officials, spoke truth to power, and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? I was struck by that word neglected. Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grains and new wine and Oil, olive oil into the storerooms and and then he lists and he he reestablishes all that was neglected he brings back and puts back into place of course I was asking God what am I neglecting what are the things that I've that that you've had me do in the past and I just haven't done them for a while There's a lot of things, right? We can neglect our Bibles, our prayers. We can neglect the poor and the needy. Jesus said in the parable of the the goats and the sheep, he said, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. He's saying when you neglect the poor and needy, you're neglecting me. Reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And Paul couldn't be with Timothy. He had discipled Timothy and he was going to get to him, but he said, Listen, Timothy, I want you to sustain a healthy faith and leadership of the church. And listen to what he says to him He says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What Paul is saying to Timothy, and I would say to you and I this morning, is that the faith is about diligence. The faith is about devotion. The faith is about perseverance. It's about using and and staying in, not neglecting. Some of the good things of God in your life. So I'd ask the question is there a rhythm, a discipline, a population, a gift that you're neglecting? Some of you have gifts that you're not presently using. Do you know we all have a gift? If you're not using that gift, especially for the body of Christ, there's a danger of doing exactly what Paul was telling Timothy not to do. Don't neglect that gift. We're gonna be talking about uh, um, Kingdom Life Communities. There's a a larger group and and we're gonna live, we're gonna learn, um, we'll we'll talk about more next week, but we're gonna worship God together. We're gonna love one another together, and we're gonna love this world together. And we were living in one of these Kingdom Life communities last spring, and we were challenged, well, I was challenging them, to do one out, not just do a Bible study and worship, not just do community time, but, but to do an out. And so we ended up going to a nursing home, and, and loving, on the population of this nursing home, and I couldn't believe how refreshing to my soul that was. Just to, and, and you know, some some of the folks in the nursing home, they they didn't. It was difficult for them to communicate. I, I don't know the the level of awareness. Um, uh, some were. Um, just, just I don't know how much they were there, and yet there was something in me that, that as we walked out, I said, "Why have we not been doing this? Why have I not been doing this on a regular basis, in a regular rhythm of my life, with it no advantage to me outside of the impact on my soul? But, but just loving people." the least of these on a regular basis in a rhythm of that and I I was convicted that I've I've neglected that out I've been so focused on so many other things that I've just not built into my life a rhythm of loving the least of these Again, is there something in your life that there is a neglect that, that you haven't done for, that, that you've done in the past, that you've, you, you've met God and you've gone, yeah, I need to keep doing that. And yet it's been a long time. Maybe this Sunday he wants to highlight that particular idea and you begin building that back into your life. All right. Moral compromise, neglect of the ways of God. One other thing. Look at verse 14. He says, Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God, And it's services. That's Nehemiah saying, remember me. In those days I saw the people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And bringing in grain and loading in on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath therefore I warned them about selling food on that day people from Tyree who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them what is this wicked thing you are doing and desecrating the Sabbath day didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us on this city now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Some of you who were here last, last week, you're going, didn't we cover Sabbath like last week? Wasn't that, wasn't that part of... And the answer is, yeah, <laughs> we did. Why, why is it back here in 13. In fact, part of the reason why the people were exiled and God had to bring them back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall, you know why? Because they neglected the Sabbath. And here at the end of Nehemiah, what is he talking to them about? The Sabbath. What is going on? I'm not going to preach to you about the Sabbath again. What I'm going to preach to you about is we forget the lessons that God has taught us in the past. We drift from the convictions that he brought us to. We we, we forget. Have you ever found yourself in a, a difficulty, a struggle, and some, you might even feel like you're suffering? And you realize you're suffering just like you did in the past and you start to get mad at God. God, why would you bring me back to this place that I prayed and prayed and you finally, you finally rescued me and I gave you glory and I said, God answered my prayer and I was out of that and now I'm back in this place again. What's up, God? I've been there. And then I realize, you know, some of the lessons he taught me the first go around, I'm not still living in the present go around. I'm saying, Lord, forgive me. I, I've forgotten those lessons of the past. I'm not allowing the lessons to mature me and transform me and affect my soul and my life and my living. I don't usually use Prince Charles of England as a positive example. But I I was struck by some of his words. He was speaking at an organization, World Jewish Relief, and uh, they were started during the World War II Nazi war, and and they were responsible for bringing uh, all these Jews to safety in London. Now they serve 18 different countries and disaster relief, employment skills, providing uh, all sorts of, of ministries, uh, uh, really across Europe. Um, and they asked Prince Charles to speak, and he was speaking, and he said this. He said, the World Relief Jewish enables us to rally together to do what we can to support people practically, emotionally, and spiritually. And they said this, particularly at a time when the horrific lessons of the last war, World War II, Seem in increasing danger of being forgotten. I was like, wow, that's a poignant word. That's human nature too, isn't it? We, we forget the lessons of history. Sometimes we forget the lessons of our own history with the Lord. The Jews were forgetting the lessons of their history. Is there any way you are forgetting the lessons of your history? Is that part of that that drift, that spiritual movement where you're not where you used to be? One more passage from Revelation, Revelation 2, 4. Jesus was speaking to another church, Ephesus, and he was saying a lot of really positive things. He was saying, boy, you've done so many good things well, church. You've not tolerated wickedness. You've tested people. And their self promoting claims, you, you've held them to the test. You've showed, you've persevered during hardship. All that was very, very good. He says, but I do have this against you, church. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. The King James says, first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place. There's consequences when you just allow yourself to stay in that drift that you don't address, you don't clean house, you don't repent, you don't say, God, I remember and claim back those things that you let go of. How about you, especially veterans? Is there aspects of first love? Let me tell you, this strikes me as a pastor. It's easy. It's easy for me to forget why I entered the ministry. It's easy to do what do I have to remember that brings life and vitality to one's faith one last thing about the book of Nehemiah can you turn with me to the very last verse I'm not crazy about this last chapter I do love the last verse he says remember me with favor my God Period, end of book, close it. He says, remember me a little bit beforehand in 22. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. He, Do you know he uses the word remember nine times scattered throughout the book. Sometimes he says, remember the enemies like Tobiah, God. He's talking about judgment, right? Sometimes he says to the people when they were in distress and they thought that uh, uh, other peoples were gonna come and, and attack them and disrupt their work, he goes, remember God. Remember God Almighty. But most often, this isn't a prayer, and he says, God, would you remember me? And when you remember me, remember me with mercy and loving kindness and your great love. You see, I, I think that that's been the greatest leadership lesson from Nehemiah is that Nehemiah lived his life before and in the presence of the living God daily that he lived his life with an awareness that God is a God who watches and cares about our life, that he is a God who sees and speaks and invites daily. He's a God that corrects and disciplines and even judges, and he's a God who blesses, and rests his favor upon us and even gives us reward. The story of Nehemiah is this incredible man of moral integrity, this man who uh, stood in the gap and the need, who prayed and listened to God and heard and directed, and yet I think the most beautiful aspect of his life as he lived his life, fellowship with God, in the presence of God, in the gaze of God, every day, he said, remember me, Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for this institution that you have given us of communion that this table of yours is free of condemnation, is free of judgment, is free of guilt, that we can come to this table regardless of what we have done in our lives, the great sins and the small sins, and you invite us to this place, And you cover our entire lives with your forgiveness, your grace, and your mercy. Would you just take this moment to ask the question, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me this morning? What's the area of my life that you're knocking on the door and you're asking to enter in? Through communion, I I, want to give permission to you, Father. Lord, we trust you that what you have said is true that when we are faithful to confess our sin you are faithful to forgive and renew and restore is there something that's stuck in your soul would you let him uproot whatever that is It was the night that Jesus would be betrayed. That after he took the bread, he blessed it, he gave thanks, and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in a similar way, after dinner, he took the cup. He said, this is a new covenant. He was talking about a new relationship, a relationship that is free of condemnation and guilt, a relationship that you can experience the newness of Christ Jesus in every moment. And he was inviting them The simple gospel is that our sins are removed so that we can walk in fellowship and in the gaze of God. That's the gospel. And Jesus saying, remember, I did this for you so that you might enter in to this relationship, that I might enter into the door of your heart and eat with you, sup with you, you his body broken and his blood shed we do this in remembrance of him I'd like to invite the elders forward we have four stations since we're a little discombobulated because of Beth but that's okay You can go to whatever station you want to go. How's that for a deal, huh? Yeah, Yeah, go wherever you go. And um, would you hold on to the elements together? So sometimes we take them at stations, but sometimes we like to hold on to the elements and we'll take them all together once we're back in our seats as a sign of unity of Christ Jesus. So, Lord, we come, and for those of us who are followers of you, we long to be renewed, to be refreshed in your presence. As we come to your table, would you come into our hearts and our souls with your presence and power? All is ready. As you feel led, come.